Welcome to my podcast, Katie's Journey. I'm your host, Kaylee Dwyer, aka KD. This show is designed for the lifelong learner, the curious brain, and the person who's probably always asking why. You'll be joining me on my journey as I meet new people, try new things, and gain the valuable insights of others as I explore my professional career. So join me on this journey if you're interested in doing the same. Welcome to episode 13 of Katie's Journey. You all are in for a treat today as I interview Andrew Stotts, CEO and founder of A. Stotts Investment Research and sister company, A. Stotts Academy. He's also the co-founder and finance director of Coffee Works, faculty member at the Thammasat University in Bangkok, Thailand, host of the podcast, My Worst Investment Ever, with the amazing tagline, Stories of Loss to Keep You Winning. He has a variety of books on Amazon, and I promise all of this information will be linked in the show notes, but let's jump into it. So I just want to, I want to jump it off because I saw a, a pretty impactful line on LinkedIn, on your LinkedIn profile about how you lost nearly everything in 1998 and then clawed your way back. And clawed your way back is, is almost pretty aggressive and sounding like how you got to where you are today and, and how you dug yourself out of Um, you know, losing everything, like you said. So now you use those experiences to help others avoid failure and and ultimately win at life. So I want to start it off with your top three takeaways. What have you learned throughout your journey and just your conversations with everyone you've met along the way? Well, first of all, thank you for having me on the show. And I would just want to say hi to all the guests. It's my pleasure to, to share some of my journey. I think, you know, um, Maybe the first thing I've kind of learned in my journey, not only obviously from the, my worst investment ever podcast, but just from life is I like this saying, um, surrender to win. And I would say that's the first big takeaway in my life is that a lot of times when I was younger, I would fight something really hard. And instead of what I've learned is sometimes you just surrender to a situation and then that empowers you with energy to then overcome it. The second thing I think I've learned in my life is that the reason why, this is just my opinion, the reason why most people are not successful is because they made a, they took on an unnecessary risk and they lost. And a way of looking at this could be thinking about, let's say basketball in America. There's only a small number of men and you know, women's basketball also, there's a small number of people that have made it to the pro level. Does that mean those are the only people that could play at the pro level? No, in fact, there's probably thousands of people that have been sidelined from injury. Just hurt their knee once, hurt their elbow once, hurt their shoulder once, and they were never able to get their bodies to perform at that level again. And that is only as a result of a risk, experiencing a risk. And then I would say my third biggest takeaway, you know, uh, really comes down to the idea that in my podcast, I've listened to 400 stories of people telling me about their, their worst investment ever. And I think probably the biggest lesson that I would say from all of that is the power of discussing your biggest mistakes or your biggest losses 
with someone you trust. And by doing that, it, it allows you, number one, to learn from it, but it also can free you from it. So those would be the three kind of big takeaways generally in my life. Yeah, and what really resonated with me and what you just said is discussing your biggest mistakes or your biggest loss. I feel like we're so hesitant to discuss anything really negative or anything that that points toward a mistake in our lives that it's just not a common conversation. You know, um, part of this, and this is why I enjoy being the host of My Worst Investment Ever because I am trying to provide a safe environment for people to discuss that and provide an environment where they can dig deeper into that. And I would say that part of that, my ability to do that comes from my own struggle. When I was 17, I entered my first drug rehab and um, basically it took three different rehabs in almost a year before I was able to emerge uh, you know, clean and sober, basically, at the age of uh, 17 when I was in 1983. And I've maintained that all, all of my life. I don't drink or, you know, do drugs. And um, yeah. that, that period of time in, in uh, treatment, as well as my experience in 12-step programs, really taught me about, um, you know, about talking about the issues that we face and finding people we trust to share our struggles and our pain. And I have a small group of people around me that I share, you know, the struggles that I'm going through. And I really think that from a mental health perspective, from an emotional health perspective, this is probably one of the most critical things that we all need is somebody we can talk to that, you know, somebody that we trust that we can talk to. And that's where the podcast comes in. It's obviously not going to in deep people's deep emotions and all that, but it is, yeah. you know, it is difficult. And I'd say uh, my favorite uh, reply to one of my invitations to one potential guest, he said, great idea, not my style. Oh, boy. <laughs> and it, it is my style to talk about loss, to talk about mistakes. And I'm proud of that. It's uncomfortable. Yeah. And to have those experiences at such a young age as well and to learn major life lessons that some people don't learn until very far later into life is is incredible because it it likely just opened your eyes up into an entire portion of your inner self that that maybe just weren't apparent at that time and and now you have kind of driven your way through life with a, this absolute awareness and recognition that it is okay to talk about things that aren't necessarily always positive. And it's okay to show vulnerability and, and uncomfortable conversations are good to have. So that is incredible. And on the addiction standpoint, um, certainly something that is an uphill battle, but I think um, having personal experiences as well, going through struggles like that, um, in my instance was my, my father. So going through instances like that and needing to really take a deep inner look at yourself and your values and the people around you, it really allows you to almost self audit and find a better version of version of yourself at the end of that. So though it's a tough process to go through, I think it's absolutely necessary to reach that, that second portion of your life where you can really see things a little bit more clearly. You know, I, <clears throat> I agree with that. And I would say I, uh, I was lucky that 
it was at a time in the U.S. where treatment centers were not necessarily businesses to the extent that they are now. And the second thing was that uh, there was this idea of raising the bottom on people that were struggling with alcohol and drugs, forcing young people from, like myself to experience the consequences in hope that you know we would find we would be searching for an answer sooner than if it, we had to wait till we were fifty. And then I also attribute that partially to my mom and dad, who you know never gave up on me when even when it was not pleasant being with me. But I <clears throat> I would also add to this that, um, you know, dealing with addiction, I know, I know it's a huge challenge now across the world and certainly in the U.S. I think that the first lesson that I learned from all that and observing, you know, what happened with my mom and dad was that um, they never gave up. And I challenge any of the listeners who are experiencing addiction themselves or within their family, there's plenty of times that, you know, you have every right to give up. But trust me, I've seen so many cases throughout my life of people that seemed like there was just simply no hope and then they turned around. So I think that message of, of never giving up and, and hope. And then I'll just tell a kind of funny story also, which is I remember I was, you know, probably 18 years old, I had been sober for a, a year and I walked into a 12 step meeting and <clears throat> I kind of bounced into it being a young guy and full of energy and all that. And there was an older guy that looked at me and he said, I spilled more beer on my necktie than you drank in your life. Oh man. <laughs> and I didn't say anything, but in my mind I thought, and your point is, yeah. And my my point is for all the people that are struggling out there, never give up, keep pushing because the younger someone can get this and get off of the trouble that they're facing, the more beautiful a life they can build. And when you get off of drugs or alcohol at the age of 30 or 40 or 50 or 60, there's just a lot of wreckage that you then have to clear away. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of things. And uh, your mom and dad never giving up on you and being there as that line of support. I actually just saw something you, you posted the other day regarding, you know, bringing your mom to Thailand in, in a time of need. And it's, it's interesting to hear you speak now and then having seen that only a few days ago to, to now see you kind of doing the exact same thing with, with your mother, never giving up and, and having brought her to to experience a much different life than she had previously. Yeah, it's been a real honor to <clears throat> spend time with my mom and dad a lot more before my dad passed away. And when my mom, uh, when he passed away, then I brought mom to Thailand. So about five years ago and was able to really help her to make a, a great recovery mm -hmm. from um, a stroke. But I, I will tell you that, uh, at the beginning of this year, my mom and I kind of agreed that we're giving up. And exactly. basically, she just said, I don't want to do exercise anymore. I don't want to do therapy. And, you know, I, and, and I said, look, I'm, I'm tired. I've pushed you for five years and I've pulled you and I've, you know, done my best. But, you know, I'm also running out of the ability or the energy or the resources to, you know, like finding the, the best people to help. I said, so yeah it's it was a very 
tough conversation. I had a lot of tears and talked to my sister a lot. And then, but you know, I just not the type of person that gives up. And so I decided just to let her have that space and see how it went. I rechecked in with her and, you know, a couple months later and yep, she's still in that space at that time. So then recently I put out an ad looking for a caregiver, but I decided to change it to say uh, a companion. And amazingly, I got this, uh, this young woman who's um, got two daughters and um, she's a Western woman here living here in Thailand. And basically she's brought her two daughters to, to the house and every day they're doing homeschooling from the house. And these two girls are full of fire and they're just, you know, really engaging mom and this caregiver's gauging mom. And I just realized, you know, that, yeah, that's part of the reason why I'm saying never give up because there's times that you just feel like you want to give up. Yeah. And that's incredible with the mm -hmm. companion and having that fire, because it might not be the exercise that your mom is looking for anymore, but it's, it's that joy that is brought on by, by the life of, of two young girls, or just the, like you said, the companionship of having someone there to bounce ideas off of, to talk to, to stay busy with. Yeah. Like <clears throat> one of my businesses in Thailand is a coffee factory called Coffee Works. And I started in 1995 with my best friend, Dale. And Dale and I, he, he runs that business and we're equal investors in it. And it's grown over the years and it's a, it's a good business. But Dale and I meet every Monday night to review the business. And I know that on Mondays, I'm really excited. I really look forward to seeing my best friend, you know, since we were 14. We were kids when we got to know each other back in Ohio. And I really look forward to that time, not only to talk about business, but to really catch up face to face. And that's kind of what I realized, like what you were saying is the joy. And that's what was, that's one thing that was missing for my mom. And so by having these girls and as well as a companion in their mother, um, you know, I think my mom's got something to look forward to a little bit more. So, you know, it's a, it's a challenge, obviously, just as dealing with a child with addiction is a challenge, dealing with uh, a parent, you know, who's struggling at, as they get older is, is a challenge, but that's life. And, you know, mom used to always say to me, I never promised you a rose garden. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that the truth? It's just life. I love that, you know. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree with that. Life certainly is not a rose garden. It has a, if it is a rose garden, well, then it has many, many thorns, but yeah. all for a good reason. You know, um, um, you mentioned about the clawing my way back. And I thought yeah. that's kind of, if you say that my addiction and that time when I was young was kind of my first hole that I was able to climb out of. Uh, the second hole really was in 1998 and we, I had been in Thailand, I had been flying high, doing a great job as an analyst, making a lot of money, rising up in that industry. The cash I was making, we used to set up our coffee works factory and we were roasting coffee and supplying hotels and coffee shops and the like. But then the 1997 crisis happened, the Asian financial crisis happened in Thailand. Thailand was the epicenter and the, the Thai bot fell by 50% meaning everything that was imported just doubled in price. So the result was also domestically, the economy collapsed by 11%. Oh, and wow. 
we were wiped out. And so I lost my job and our business basically lost almost all its revenue. And Dale and I had to go move into our factory on the outskirts of Bangkok. And there we were, you know, I moved to Thailand in 1992. This was 1998. You know, you'd think I would be riding high, but by this time I was staying in a little, little room in a hot box factory on the outskirts of Bangkok in kind of a jungle like area. And, uh, wow. and we just saw that there was, it seemed like there was no way out. And every day we woke up and we just basically set up, you know, two beds in a room, just like we were back at college. And we just didn't see a way. I didn't think I would ever get a job again as an analyst because, you know, the stock market just kept collapsing and it didn't seem like there was a way we were going to get the revenue up from our business. And, you know, we weren't rich guys. We had to finance it ourselves. No bank's going to give us money. And we couldn't get out of the situation because you can look at, you know, entrepreneurship sometimes is like a trap. We spent a lot of money to build this factory, but nobody was going to buy it for us and from us. And even if they did buy it, they would have bought it at 20 cents on the dollar or something. So we yeah. couldn't really go back and we couldn't go forward. So it was just a really tough time. And then one day in, uh, in late in August 1998, we were sitting there. It was a real rainy day, just like one of these really dark and monsoon type of rain just that smell i can still smell the smell of a heavy rain and it was in the morning and we were just sitting there had cleaned up had a little breakfast and we were just sitting there talking and my sister called my older sister and she was in boston area and she called to tell me that her cancer had returned and that the doctor said she'd only live about a month more and she asked me to come home and when i hung up that phone Dale and I just looked at each other and just cried. And it was just like, this was a real business bottom, but now it became a personal bottom. And it is kind of like that saying, when it rains, it pours. And then I flew to America. And then a week after I arrived, my sister passed away. And oh, no. so it was just a tough loss um, for our family, for myself, for her daughters, for her husband. And then I had to come back to Thailand to still what was a pretty disastrous situation. And so when I say I clawed my way back, it really was one day at a time trying to get back until we could get our business back up on its feet, until I could get a you know job as an analyst again and get back to my work. And then slowly recovering, you know, losses that we made in the business and trying to, you know, rebuild my wealth. So yeah. that's why I say I clawed myself back. I nearly lost it all and I clawed myself back. And I'd say one thing that I learned from my experience as a young guy was that I, when I graduated from treatment and I went out into the world and, and started living my sober life, I was super happy. I had just a great time, but I didn't have any money. And that was the lesson I learned from that was that money doesn't, you know, there's no promise that money brings happiness. And so I learned that I could be happy without money. And therefore, even if I was facing really painful business situation and all that, I could still be happy. And that was kind of the thing that kept me going as I clawed myself out. Yeah, um, I was actually just reading a book and it's uh, The Second Mountain by David Brooks. And he, like right before this podcast, he mentions in the book, like if you're searching for money and material items to bring you happiness and you are going to be searching forever. If you're searching for intelligence, then you're always going to feel like you're maybe not as smart as other people in the room. Or if you're hyper-focused on 
your looks or your body or you're not ever going to feel like you've succeeded that goal. So finding the true happiness of, of what brings you the most amount of joy on a, on a level that you can always appreciate is massively important. So finding that happiness in just your sober self navigating life and, and trying the best that you can through hard work and effort is much more than what money could, could ever give you. Exactly. That's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. And, um, nobody can take so, that away. No, no one can take it away. And, and even if, even if situations try to try to take away from that happiness, like the situations that you've experienced throughout your life and what those experiences have made you into today, it still can't take away from the learnings and the lessons and the feelings and emotions that you've overcome as well. So it's, it's more than just overcoming experiences. It's just finding a better part of yourself to, you know, embrace the calm of life even though the storm is just like going crazy. Love That's it. awesome. And so I, I saw someone also call you hyperproductive and I, I'm sure that has something to do with the fact of, you know, everything that you've been able to accomplish since 1998. So what are some keys to success that, that you can share? What, what has kept you going through this entire time of kind of fulfilling that hyperproductive role? Well, I would say that, when I was uh, when I graduated from university, I went to work for Pepsi, and I worked in management. Although I had studied finance, and although I wanted to work in management, I just knew that there's something something wasn't it wasn't really what I wanted to do at that time. And so I applied for a job as teaching finance in Thailand, and just on on a on a whim basically, and um, got a letter from a university to ask me to come and teach. So I, I did that and I quit my job at Pepsi. I took an 80% pay cut. And I basically arrived in, Pe at Pepsi in, I arrived in Thailand with, you know, really almost nothing. Uh, I had $20,000 in student loan debt and maybe a couple thousand dollars in cash. So I really have a point in my life where I can say, you know, I started at time zero right there. And, uh, and I still worked as a one year teaching at university. And I realized that I didn't really like that you know, it wasn't going to be my full-time life. And I also didn't like the money, you know, it was nothing basically in Thailand. Yeah. You've got to really love teaching to, to accept the, uh, <laughs> exactly the salary in some instances. Exactly. So I applied for a job as an analyst and I sat down at that job. I was 28 at the time. I sat down on that first day and I just realized like, this is the love of my life the idea of applying my brain to understand something and then make judgments about whether to buy or sell a particular stock or when to buy a market or not. And that, and knowing that all of your ideas are tested against the market. So, you know, you can have, um, in, in life, you can have really incorrect views about something and you can survive. But in the stock market, if you have incorrect views about the stock market and you're really convinced of your view, it doesn't matter. The market will take away your money very quickly. And so I found that it was like the perfect place to take my, my intellectual capacity and my desire to try to, you know, find truth, find ideas and test them. So I think the thing that carried me throughout all of these years was that I really realized I was an analyst and I will be till the day I die. And that means the desire to test my, to come up with ideas and test them. 
So I would say that's, you know, one of the things that really, and, and my advice to people, young people that are in the beginning of that journey is don't be afraid to quit because we can't, we, it's, it's hard to know where we should be. There's no way I would have predicted I should have been sitting at a desk in 1993 at a stockbroker in Thailand. Yeah. But what I could say is I, it's, it's easier to know what's not working today. And once I determined what wasn't working today, I had the guts to walk away from it. And I think that when I speak to young people and I say how to have a, like a happy life, I say, you know, quit. Quit more often when you really have identified that something is not right for you. I, that is so profound and so very true where you need to experience things that maybe don't, you're not going to find the perfect fit immediately. Things are, there's no silver bullet. And, and so often do people, does, does the population get, get turned around and trying to find the silver bullet or the easier way out or the best fit when at the end of the day, it's through experiences and, and through quitting. <laughs> like you said, you're not going to know what's right for you until you identify what's wrong for you. I visualize it like a monkey swimming, swinging through the forest. There is the time when he's swinging on one vine going to the next and he just has to let go of the vine he has in his hand. If he doesn't let go of that vine, he's going to swing back and then he's going to lose his momentum and he's not going to be able to get where he wants. So there is this like moment in time where he thinks he's identified what he's grabbing onto. <laughs> and yeah. I think that's the best way that I've, uh, I've, I've come to think about it. That that's so true, though. That poor monkey. I hope he grabs onto the vine. <laughs> and he, he always ends up getting something, you know. He always swings somewhere, somewhere throughout. But it's pretty interesting that you ended up in Thailand, and so you just to make sure I understand this, you just kind of applied to a job and said, "What the heck? I'm going to start over," and just went to Thailand, just like yeah. that. Now I lived in, I went to university at Cal State Long Beach. And so I lived in Long Beach and Long Beach had 10% uh, of its population was Cambodian. It was a major okay. you know, place where Cambodians went after the Khmer Rouge devastated you know, the country. So I had a Cambodian girlfriend at the time or around that time when I was in university and then got to know her family and, and really learned a lot about cultures of Southeast Asia through them. So that's why I kind of originally I thought I would go to Cambodia but then it just wasn't when I first took my first trip to Asia you know it was 1988 and Cambodia was just kind of finally coming out of war and it just wasn't a great time there it also wasn't a great time for China you know like 1988 yeah. um, we just had the Tiananmen Square uh, sorry 1989 uh, Tian Tiananmen Square crackdown and so that was going on in China and you know, it just wasn't. So Thailand was like a place that I thought like, it's pretty interesting. It's exotic. It's more exotic than, than Hong Kong or Singapore was. So I thought, let's just do it. And so I sent out letters in those days, you know, we didn't have emails and things. So I sent out letters to like 20 universities and I got one back and then I just sold everything I owned in California. When I was living in Long Beach, I sold everything, quit my job, closed all my bank accounts, packed up everything. I left a few boxes at my godfather's house. And then I brought 13 small boxes that I paid for to, to put on the airplane. And I brought them here and I arrived. And um, that was nearly 30 years ago. 
that is amazing. And it's so tough to just kind of take your entire life, throw it in a box and say, see ya, and I'll, I'll come back to visit. Um, do you think your experiences when you were 17 year, years old made, made you as decisive as you are today in your decisions? I think it, <clears throat> I think I, I understood the risks you know, I think I, I got to learn about risk. I got to learn about loss. I got to learn about um, decisions and decision-making process and all that. So a lot of those things I learned in treatment and through 12-step programs. So basically, I felt like I had what I needed to make the decisions. My, my mom often says that she always knew that I would make the right decision. Like she gave me the tools to do that. We were just talking about how uh, just yesterday with a young guy that's just recently come to Thailand, an American guy. And we, we were talking about how in 1992 when I moved here, you know, we didn't have, we, we couldn't afford to do phone calls. We didn't have mobile phones. We didn't have internet or anything like that. So it was just letters. And there could have been, you know, five months where we didn't talk. And my mom always said, she said she just always knew I would be making the, you know, the right decision or the best decision I could with what I knew. So I think decision-making is a really critical thing. Of, um, I, I'd like to talk to people uh, from what I learned from my podcast in particular too, is the idea of separating the research that you do related to the upside of something from the research that you do related to the downside. So let's just look at it from a perspective of buying a stock. Someone could say, I want to buy Amazon because I think it's going to, you know, expand and it's going to have a lot more customers and the revenue is going to rise. And, you know, these are all things related to the upside. But then, then what happens for most people is they never look at the downside. But if you are, if you were to separate that and say, one day I'm going to look at the upside and the next day I'm going to look at the downside, it gives you permission to say what could go wrong and what is the, you know, impact on me if that does go wrong. And I decided at the age of, you know, 27 when I arrived in Thailand that, you know, if it all went wrong, I would just have spent one or two years in Thailand and just had to come back to America and restart. And I would think that my ability to understand the risks and not, you know, I think right now in this time of the COVID, I would call it panic, uh, yeah. very, very hard. Most people uh, are not using logic and reason. And we have a whole social media platform and news platforms that really uh, make their money from feeding panic rather than feeding logic and reason. And so the power of being an analyst, the power of, of analyzing and thinking critically, I think is much more valuable nowadays than it even was back when I started. So if I talk to advice about young people, I would say, learn how to debate, learn how to think, learn how to apply logic and reason. And, you know, you'll be ahead of a lot of people because most people will just get stuck in their emotion. Um, what you just said there, the, the critical thinking aspect and, and how much we are really lacking of that today, I, I would say with the larger part of society, especially with how aggressive uh, things have been as of late and especially within this past year, I think that critical thinking is absolutely imperative and something that has really waned and, and has gone away, I feel like, from from just the everyday person. It's it's something that we're truly lacking, but I think your ability to test your ideas and ha see those immediate returns and maybe those immediate losses 
has really formed you into, like you said, that analytical thinker that allows you to identify how much risk you're willing to tolerate versus how much how much rewar- reward could be on the upside of that. And it has so much to do with, with more than just the dollars and cents of it, but also just life overall. It's incredible. It's such a valuable tool because immediately when the crisis happened with COVID, I was able to just sit down with the numbers and start to make some estimates of what I thought my actual risks were <clears throat> of particularly getting COVID and then of dying of COVID. You know, those are the two things that I wanted to think about. And I was able to do that calculation and understand that the risk actually was very, very, very low. And then in Thailand, in the beginning, we had the government was releasing details of COVID deaths. And what I could see is they released a lot of detail about each person. And I found that majority of people were over the age of 70 and had two to five comorbidities. And that's when immediately when I saw that after I just looked at the first 20 cases and I made a chart, a table out of it and analyzed it, uh, I knew immediately what to do, which was uh, start my my latest uh, water fast (laughs) and (laughs) rebuild my immunity and make sure my weight was down because I also saw the correlation between obesity, hypertension, diabetes, which are all somewhat related to obesity and knew that that's my biggest risk reduction right reducer right there. And so for, for my staff and the people around me, I was able to be a rock of, of, you know, strength because I had thought about those things carefully and analyzed them and then tried to mitigate my risks. Yeah. Instead of playing off of the fear and, and not looking at the facts of the situation, you assessed how you could best perform in the experience that you were kind of just ha- actually that we were all basically slapped in the face with. <laughs> um, but you're totally right. Focusing on health and the, and the areas that would give you the best likelihood of, um, you know, not succumbing to getting COVID or having anything bad happen into your life. Well, it's interesting because yeah. I, um, I tried to understand why Southeast Asia in particular, or maybe Asia saw a lot less COVID deaths than in the West. So at first I looked at obesity across every country in the world. You know, I just took a Saturday and I said, okay, I'm going to download obesity numbers across every country in the world. And then I'm going to download the percent of the population that died of COVID and then see if there's some correlation. Well, in fact, there is a very direct correlation. Um, Why that correlation is there, I don't know. And I'm not trying to say that I know a cause or a, a, a solution to it. But I could see that there was enough there for me to start to question it. But what was really interesting is then, but over time I saw that there was a lot more deaths in the Philippines than there were in Thailand. And they're pretty close. They're both in Asia. Why would it be so different? And then I started looking into the cases of not only obesity, but the level of hypertension, the level of diabetes. And I found that it was very, very different between Philippines and Thailand. And then that started to give me some possible answer. It's just a a hypothesis. And I think that's where, you know, it's important for for the listeners out there to understand the difference between a hypothesis and let's say a theory. Um, You know, a hypothesis is when you you have an idea and you, you, you test it. And it's a very, hypothesis is a very weak, you know, form of idea where it's only strengthening through testing it and trying to, to, to disprove it. 
But if you can't disprove it over and over again, then it starts to become a theory. So I think that for the listeners out there, uh, the way I always remembered it was H comes before T in the alphabet. So we start with H, meaning hypothesis. So I challenge the listeners to come up with any hypothesis and then try to disprove it. And that's how science works. I love that. That's a, that's a great way to think about it. You've, you've done a great job so far of, of really taking some of these more complex concepts and boiling it down into a way that is easily understood by, by the general population. Because quite honestly, a, a lot of the things on the financial side and the political side and, and pretty much the scientific side is so foreign um, just from the language aspect and, and from the barrier of how, you know, some people have their head in the sand <laughs> mm-hmm. and it, it just goes over their head. So it's, I love how you're able to kind of boil that down in a way that's easily consumed. Um, and I'm curious, so your curiosity and drive to want to test hypotheses and come up with different ideas for how things work and, and actually test those and put them into action how does one, so I know we've mentioned before we jumped on the podcast, you are, are working to really develop something to get younger people to start off on the right foot in their investment efforts or, or their financial efforts. How does one really start to start small in the testing ideas phase, whether it be financial or, or just in life in general? You start with beetroot. In America, we have something called beets, right? We call them beets. Like we have canned beets. But in Thailand, they call it beetroot. And they actually, I've never seen what a beetroot actually looks like, but it's the full beet, right? B-E-E-T. And it's a vegetable. And one of the interesting things you can do with a beet, if you can get yourself a beet or beetroot, um, Take a couple of days and measure your, um, your blood pressure. Let's say it's 100 and, 130 over 90, as an example. Then measure it for about five days and take the average of those five days. And let's say the average of those five days comes out to 130 over 90. Then make a juice concoction of one beet root and maybe a carrot or an apple or something like that, and then drink that. And then after you drank it a couple of hours later, take your blood pressure again and do that every day for a week. And then take the average blood pressure after you've taken that beetroot drink for a week and then see what the difference is. This is a little simple experiment you can do right now at home. What I did is I did it with my mother. She was on blood pressure medicine and I decided to test out a beat. Now I had read about beats and the the potential that they had for reducing blood pressure. But by applying this and then trying two beetroot drinks a day and one beetroot drinks a day for my mother, and then I measure her um, blood pressure three times a day, I was able to see that I could bring down her blood pressure to the extent I could take her off of the blood pressure medicine. Now wow. we did that. We did that under doctor's supervision and with me tracking it every day 
all the time as an analyst. I have all the charts and graphs of what I did. And she wasn't really aware of what I was doing because she was, you know, recovering from a stroke. And But I was trying to think about how we could reduce the amount of drugs that were going into her with the hope that some of the side effects of those would start to wear off and she'd get her mind back. So my mother's not on blood pressure medicine right now and hasn't been for many years because we've used beetroot to manage it. And the only side effect, you get almost the same impact of what you get from a drug. And the only side effect is you eat a lot of healthy beetroot. <laughs> You're just healthier. That's the only side yeah. effect. Sorry, everyone. <laughs> yeah. And let's just say you've done the test and it didn't work. You're like, Andrew, that didn't work. Well, that's great. You've just learned something on your own body. And the side effect of that is that you've got other health benefits from having drank beetroot for a week. I am going to try that. You know, there were so many ways that you could have answered that. And I'm absolutely shocked that beets, beets, beets came out of that. And I am totally going to try that because you're, you're so right. And starting with something that you could just test on yourself. Yep. It's not harmful. It's a vegetable. Like it's, it's just something that you're able to start testing some ideas, seeing the results of of changing one certain factor in your life and i think that's pretty cool i'm i am absolutely going to give it a shot um and so this has been a fantastic conversation and getting to learn about your journey and how you got to where you are today it's i have been super curious about it over the past few weeks and it's amazing to to hear you explain it and and kind of walk through what that looks like so I appreciate it greatly. Um, and for all of the listeners, I know, Andrew, you have a ton of things available from a resource perspective, from a, a book perspective. I did see that you have a, a few great things on Amazon. So what should the listeners know? Where should they find you? Where should they, where should they grab your resources? Well, first of all, I'd say thank you for having me on your show. I appreciate that and our discussion. And as you see, our discussion is a lot different from what the experience is on the podcast. And part of that's because the podcast is my way of providing a channel for other people to tell their stories. I do mix in some of my stories in it, but it's a channel for other people to, you know, share. So for, for the listeners out there that want to learn more or, or join this journey, just go to myworstinvestmentever.com and you'll see a little pop-up, those annoying pop-ups. Just sign up in there and you'll get access to all of the resources that I have, including I have six different online courses I've created. You'll get 25% off of those and you'll get my weekly emails and other stuff that I'm doing. So you'll be able to access that, including the, the latest thing that I'm working on and will be launching in the next week or so, which is the risk reduction checklist where I've gone through the episodes and tried to say, what are the most common risks and how can we reduce them? In addition, if someone really wants to get in touch with me, on myworstinvestmentever.com, there's an about page and there is a link to contact me that does go directly to my personal email. And finally, if anybody wants to reach out on LinkedIn, I'm always there. Awesome. Well, you heard it here, everybody, on Katie's journey. And this has been a fantastic conversation, like I said, Andrew. And uh, I can't wait to see where your journey takes you because it's certainly not finished. You have so many things going on and it's, it's always a surprise jumping onto your, jumping onto your page or your website and seeing like all, all of the resources. It, it's game changing. <laughs> um, 
So I'm excited to see what's to come because I know there's more. Well, thanks for having me on the show and I'm happy to share my journey with you and everybody out there. Awesome. Thank you. Well, everyone listening, we are tuning out and thank you for listening to episode 13 of Katie's Journey.